You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to the Sonoran Desert. We're here today at the Picture Rocks Retreat Center, just outside of Tucson, Arizona, a kind of unique desert-looking area. I think if you're used to desert and thinking about desert, this is not a desert of sand dunes. As you can see, this is very lush, lots of plant life, lots of different kinds of forms. And I'm gonna be talking to you today about some of the life you see here, but in general, about life itself. This series of lectures is about biology. Our aim here today is to talk to you about some issues in biology. My name is Marty Hewlett. I'm a faculty member at the University of Arizona, a professor in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology there. This series of lectures is going to start today with a philosophical reflection, a historical perspective on the field of biology. We're going to move from that on to talk a little bit about genetics, a little bit about the field of molecular biology, about the area of biotechnology, and ultimately about the Human Genome Project. My credentials for talking to you about that is that I'm a molecular biologist, I'm a virologist, I teach undergraduate courses in introductory biology, in molecular biology, and in virology at the university. But we're not just going to talk about the biology of the situation. I also want to deal specifically with issues in biology, especially issues as they affect our faith. My credentials for that, in fact, are a life of reflection about this, I think you could say, but also in particular involvement with the St. Albert the Great Forum on Philosophy, Theology, and Science, which operates out of the Newman Center at the University of Arizona, and my own personal journey in terms of faith, philosophy, and theology with respect to my science. The topics we'll cover during this series of lectures will not be the details of the science as much as they will be the issues that the science raises for us. So I hope you'll join me on this journey and watch with me as we look at what biology has become in the modern area, what I'm going to call for you modern biology. Biology itself means the study of life. What do we mean by life? If we look around us, we see these cacti that are here in the background. We know these as living things. Well, how do we distinguish that from the rocks we see around us? How is it that we know that a cactus or a tree or a bird that flies by is alive and that the rocks we see are not alive? What are the criteria we use to try to establish what is living from what is non-living? Well, one of the obvious criteria is growth. Living things we see around us grow and develop. They go from small, immature forms to larger, mature forms. So growth is one criteria that we use for life. Another criteria is metabolism. The fact that living things that we see take in nutrients and change those nutrients in order to gain energy to do the growth and to do the other kinds of things that they do. For instance, movement in terms of animals. So we have growth and we have metabolism. The third kind of thing we think that living things do is to adapt to their surroundings. So we see many examples of adaptation here to this very dry climate where rainfall is at a minimum. These plants around us have adapted to that kind of environment. They've changed their way of growing, their way of metabolizing to adapt to what they have available. 
Finally, we think of life as a property which is passed on to succeeding generations. We call this inheritance. So we see the forms around us, and if we find a seed on one of these plants, for instance, these pods here on this cactus, which contain the seeds, if we take one of those seeds and we actually planted it in the ground, we have every expectation that what would grow would be another cactus plant, much like the one we see before us. So we call that inheritance, the idea that succeeding generations come from the previous generation. Those are four properties that we associate with life growth, metabolism, adaptation, and inheritance. And we're going to talk mainly about those latter properties, the properties of adaptation and inheritance, in terms of how modern biology has come to view those properties of life, and what we understand about them, and what issues the experiments that have been done raise for us in terms of these properties that we call living systems. We've always wondered about living things. I think man has done that for all of his history. If we think about the ancient cave paintings that have been found in places like France, we see that the first thing that ancient man drew were the living creatures around him. We see pictures of the animals that were being hunted. If we look back in our written history in the Western civilization culture, we find that one of the first kinds of approaches to understanding the living world was done actually by Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a treatise on animals in which he described the various ways that animals are formed, the way they grow, the way they move, how they interact with their environment, how they gather food. This treatise called De Animalis was of course the only written codification of biology that we had until much, much later in Western history. A little bit later, in the Middle Ages, we have St. Albert the Great, the phenomenal Dominican scholar who was both a philosopher, a theologian, and the preeminent biologist of his day. St. Albert, who is the patron saint of scientists, actually, wrote two large works, one called De Animalibus and the other De Vegetibilibus, both of which were treaties on the biological world. St. Albert was known for his ability to observe biological creatures and to write in great detail about what he saw. So this, in fact, came down to us as really the great codification of the Middle Ages of the biological world. And this is what we had for biology, a description of the living world that we used in order to think about how things are structured and what is made around us, what we see interacting with us. Now this is the situation in science at the time of the Middle Ages. And in fact, St. Albert's great student, St. Thomas Aquinas, the author of Summa Theologica, is the one who set into place for us the construction, we'll say, of the universe of the Middle Ages. St. Thomas, in his learning from St. Albert, discovered the work of Aristotle, was able to make the work of Aristotle consonant with the Christian thought, was able to formulate an idea about the universe, the heavens, all of nature that was consonant with scripture, and put together something that fit in terms of the Ptolemaic structure of the universe. And this was a great advance, especially for Western man. However, the problem began when Copernicus decided that the Ptolemaic system of viewing the universe was not exactly wrong, as far as he was concerned, but was, shall we say, unbeautiful. Copernicus was concerned about the multiplicity of cycles that had to be envisioned to explain the movement of all the heavenly bodies in the Ptolemaic system, which had the earth at the center and everything else revolving around it. As a result, Copernicus said, 
What if we place the sun at the center and we have everything revolve around the sun, the heliocentric model? He said it looked more beautiful this way. What I don't think he foresaw was the great revolution in thought that would come about because of this paradigm shift. That is that our concept of the heavens, our concept of the entire universe and the world to which it relates would forever be shattered physically. Because no longer was heaven simply straight up above with us at the center. Now with the sun at the center and us revolving around it, suddenly we don't know which way heaven is. We don't know which way things are for the angels and the other spheres that were inherent in Aristotle, in Ptolemaic view, and in Thomistic thought. Galileo comes along shortly after that and begins to make observations with his telescope that actually prove the Copernican system, prove in fact that these planets are revolving around the sun that we are riding on. This begins the break between, we'll say, science and theology. The church's reaction to that was only natural for the time. It was a defensive reaction. It's only been recently that the church has gone back to relook at that information and to say, you know, this was an overreaction to the situation, perhaps. But nonetheless, the break has been made. We come up next to what we call the Age of Enlightenment which really is brought in by the thoughts of René Descartes, the great French philosopher. Descartes is trained in Thomistic philosophy. In fact, he is perhaps overtrained in Thomistic philosophy. He reacts against it. And he goes off to develop his own way of thinking about the world. In Descartes' way of thinking about the world, he tries to simplify it. And he tries to say, the first thing that exists is thought. Not the external world, the way Thomas would have us think, but that thought pre-exists that in his nature. So he has thought being something that makes him be, that because he thinks he knows that he is. Of course, Descartes knows that God is. He says, because I am, God exists. And that's all consonant with what went before. But his schism between the mind and the body, between thought and the material world, begins this duality that descends to us today in what is called the Cartesian frame of thinking. Descartes becomes the first of the great thinkers to lead us in the direction that will eventually become what is modern science. So after René Descartes comes Sir Francis Bacon. Bacon is really the first of the great Enlightenment thinkers who is credited with developing what we now call the scientific method. That means the method by which first we observe, we develop a hypothesis to explain the observations. We might develop experiments to try to test the hypothesis. And then we judge whether that hypothesis is correct or not. And we go on to new hypothesis with new observations. Bacon is really the one who comes up with what is called the hypothetical deductive method. By the way, deduction is not the only method in science. There's also induction. There's also retroduction. So there are several different methods, but I'm going to focus on what we call the hypothetical deductive method, since modern biology uses that methodology almost exclusively in its experimental approach. Francis Bacon is a great physicist and a great philosopher, actually a better philosopher probably than a physicist. We remember him more for his philosophical approach to science than we remember him for his scientific achievements. But another contemporary, another enlightened scientist is Isaac Newton. And Sir Isaac Newton really is the pivotal point in our thinking about science and its development on the way. Notice that we haven't been talking much about biology at this point. We're really locked on to physics and philosophy as the background. And there's a very special reason for that. 
At this time in the development of science, it's really physics which is at the pinnacle of achievement. And biology is still pretty much an observational discipline. I'll come back in a moment to what I mean by that. Isaac Newton develops for us next his ideas about physics. You'll notice that we've been talking mainly about philosophy and physics and not so much about biology. And that's because physics at this time of the development of science is really at the center of attention for most of the both philosophers and scientists of the day. Isaac Newton observes the world around him but does something very special. He begins to describe how the world behaves, the physical world around him, in mathematical terms. In fact, Newton develops a mathematics specifically for the description of that world. He develops calculus as a way of being able to speak about the motion of things he sees in the world. Aristotle referred to motion hundreds of years before this, but not in strictly mathematical terms, only really in descriptive terms. Now Newton is able to write down mathematical statements which in fact describe the motion of things that he sees in a predictive fashion. So that he can say if a body has certain mass and a certain velocity then it will have a certain force that it exerts on another body. This is a very important advance in our thinking both scientifically and philosophically. With Isaac Newton science reaches a maturity we'll say, I'll use the word maturity, because it now has both a theoretical basis and a language which it speaks. Let me back up and say what I mean by that. When I say that science has a theoretical basis, I mean that predictions can be made from this theory. So given Newton's laws of motion, one can look at a body at rest or a body in motion and make a prediction about what will happen next. This is the theoretical basis of it. To say that it has a language means that it has a way of in signs and symbols describing the physical world in a way that can be communicated to other scientists in a way that is very rigorous. And the use of mathematics as a language then makes what scientists, especially physicists, call physics a very mature science. Now what is the state of biology in the Enlightenment? What has happened to biology while Newton has been busy writing his Principia Mathematica and his treatises on motion? Well, biology is still very much a descriptive science. Prior to the age of the Enlightenment, from the time of St. Albert the Great forward, biology has been involved with describing the world around it as a series of descriptions of those creatures in the world. And the way of describing those creatures was called the polynomial description. Polynomial means that each creature, each plant, each animal, had a series of names to describe it. And those names were basically Latin descriptions of the properties. So for instance, I might describe one of these cacti as a cylindrical green object with ribbed veins going up and down it and with flowers on the top and thorns coming out. And all of those words in Latin would be used to describe that as a unique thing. This made description of the biological world very, very complex because each entity in the world, as you discovered it, especially with the opening up of the new world, would have to have its own set of polynomial descriptors. So it became a very complex system. And it was at the beginning of the 18th century that Carlos, Carl Linnaeus, a Swedish botanist, proposed a new system of classification, which is called the binomial system. In the binomial system, Linnaeus proposed that every creature would simply be given two names, which we now know as the genus 
and the species name. Linnaeus used two Latin descriptors for each creature, each plant, each animal that he wanted to describe. And then as a subtext to that, he'd write a description of that thing. So for instance, we would call our family dog a Canis domesticus. And under that description, Linnaeus would write what a dog is about. So the binomial system simplified greatly the descriptive work of biologists and botanists. And that has come down to us today. It's still the names we use for creatures around us. We use the genus and species name. Now Linnaeus's proposal to put everything in this binomial form brought descriptive biology under control, we'll say. But notice that we still don't have a theoretical basis for the biology, and we still don't have a specific language. Oh yes, Latin is being used in the names, but that's not really a language that's specific to biology. Specifically, we don't have a theoretical basis to use for prediction. And with that, we would have to say that biology, at the time of the Enlightenment, in the age of physics being the glory of the sciences, still remains as basically an immature discipline, one without a theory and without a specific language. So the situation during the age of Enlightenment, approaching the beginning of the 19th century, is as follows. Physics is the queen of the sciences, clearly with a theoretical and language basis that makes it mature. Biology has remained descriptive. Now, what is the philosophical basis for science as we approach the 19th century? Well, we began with Rene Descartes. We had Francis Bacon's contribution of the scientific method. And so far, everything still allows the inclusion of some of what we might call the Thomistic approach. But at the beginning of the 18th century, we have the philosopher David Hume. And David Hume's contribution to philosophy of science is the following. First of all, let me say that David Hume was an avowed atheist. And David Hume saw it as a real problematical situation if science included any acknowledgement of the Creator. So David Hume suggested that science should be, first of all, empirical. That is, it should be observational and should depend on experiments for gaining its information. That is, empirical observation. Secondly, David Hume suggested that science should only deal with the material. Science should have nothing to do with what people call the spiritual realm of things. This is taking off on Descartes' dualism, that is the mind-body split, and saying, let's ignore the material that we call mind, that we call spirit, that some might call soul, and let's concentrate only on the physical, on the material world, as the proper object of science. So Hume makes that suggestion. And thirdly, Hume suggests that science should not be concerned with causes. Now by causes, I mean this in the Aristotelian fashion. Hume decides that science should only be concerned about the form of nature and the material of nature. That is, what nature is and what it's made of, rather than who made it and what its purpose is. And I'll come back to those Aristotelian causes a bit later in our series. So with that suggestion, strongly in place, the philosophy of science of the 19th century starts to approach what comes to be called logical empiricism or logical positivism, a movement that lasted into the 20th century in science and whose demise only came about with the advent of quantum physics at the beginning of this century. Now, at the beginning of the 19th century then, science finds itself focused on the material world. Now, in order to do experiments, in order to be an empiricist the way Hume suggests, Looking around you at the world, it's apparent that it's very complex, and therefore experiments are very difficult to do. So 
the approach of science becomes reductionist. Now, reductionist is a kind of interesting word. Reductionist means that we're going to take the world we see and break it into simpler components. There are three ways of being reductionist that we want to consider. The first way is a very practical way. In order for science and the kind of biology we're going to talk about to be practiced, it's almost by necessity that you have to break the world up into smaller components. That's called methodological reductionism. In other words, the only way I can do an experiment in the laboratory is to take a complex system and begin to focus on one of its components. The second kind of reductionism is the reductionism that says the only way I can understand this complex world, the only way I have of knowing about it, is by examining those fine components, those details of the world. In other words, I can't gain knowledge of the world considering it in all its complexity. I can only consider it reduced to smaller, more manageable subunits. And that kind of reductionism is called epistemological reductionism. Epistemological reductionism. The third kind of reductionism, I think, is the most dangerous for us as scientists. And that is the kind of reductionism that says, not only do I do my experiments by dividing the world up into smaller pieces, not only do I think that that's the only way I can gain knowledge about the world, but I actually think that the world itself is as it is because of those units. In other words, everything is composed of the smallest subunit, which let's say is at the atomic level for our purposes, and that all properties of the world we see can be explained simply by the properties of the smallest subunits. That's called ontological reductionism. So we have three kinds of reductionism at work in science. The practical kind, the kind that we follow to gain knowledge, we say, and the kind where we actually believe that the world is no more than the sum of its parts, that things around us are no more than the sum of its parts. This is the situation at the beginning of the 19th century. Now, the 19th century is a fascinating time for science. Physics has moved to the point where it has now reached the level where people believe practical things can come from it. And in fact, practical things are starting to come from physics and its investigations. Chemistry, in fact, has come along the way behind physics and has started to be able to describe the world in terms of the elements that make up the world. Biology is still descriptive as we approach the middle of the 19th century. Now, there's a very interesting time in the 19th century, the decade of the 60s, from 1859 to 1869. It's a fascinating decade for biology. Fascinating in the sense that we can look back on it historically and see certain things that happen, which today we think, wow, why didn't they know this at the time? Why didn't they see this juxtaposition? There are three events that happened during that decade of interest to us today. The first is that in November of 1859, a book is published in London by Charles Darwin. It's called On the Origin of Species. This is a long-awaited book. Darwin has been working on this for some 20 years and publishes it finally in 1859. In 1868, in a monastery at Brunn, Austria, an Augustinian friar, Father Gregor Mendel, is working on his experiments with peas. And in 1868, he publishes in the Brune Academy of Science Journal a treatise on pea hybridization, in which he formulates what he calls laws of heredity, as they apply in his estimation to pea plants. This is Mendel's publication of the laws of genetics, 1868. In 1869, 
is reported the discovery by a chemist, Friedrich Meischer in Switzerland, that is also revolutionary, but no one knows it. Friedrich Meischer is working in Switzerland in a Red Cross facility on patients from the Crimean War. At that time, much before the development of disposable bandages, and Meischer is working in a unit where the bandages used on the war victims are actually washed, sterilized, and reused. And Meischer is taking the material that's washed off these bandages, basically pus from the wounds, and in there would be white blood cells. And Meischer discovers in this a material that he calls nuclein. Nuclein is what we call today DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. So within a matter of 10 years are reported the theory of evolution in Darwin's Origin of Species, the laws of inheritance and genetics in Mendel's paper, and the molecule DNA. None of these three knew the importance of their discoveries one to the other. It's clear that Mendel knew about Darwin's book. It had been published some 10 years prior to his publication and of course in the succeeding time of his career, and I'll talk more a little bit about Gregor Mendel later, he was at that monastery and was at seminars and meetings and in classes where Darwin's theory of evolution was being discussed. But it's probably clear that Darwin knew nothing of Mendel's discovery. Many prominent scientists of Mendel's day, in fact, had his paper in their collections, and some were even found unopened, never even read. No one of the two of them, we're sure, knew anything of Meischer's discovery of DNA. No one knew what DNA would do at that point, or what its importance would be. But by the middle of the 20th century, those three developments, Darwin's theory of evolution, the laws of Mendel and genetics, and the molecule DNA would come together to make what we call modern biology. So this decade of the 60s in the 19th century, from 1859 to 1869, is a very critical time. Now Darwin's publication on the origin of species raises an issue for the first time with biology and our faith, you might say. Because it raises for the first time a new view of the living world. Prior to Darwin's view, the view of scientists had been that everything we see in the living world is as God created it originally. But Darwin argues that species, as we see them, the species that Linnaeus had defined in his binomial definition, that these species actually evolved from pre-existing species, and that everything in the living world was a kind of linearity of descendants from priorly existing species. What we know as the theory of evolution is still that essentially today. Now, the challenge to faith, the challenge, let's say, to the church's teaching at the time, was thought to be quite severe and was fought in many quarters. If we actually look back in church history, though, and we look at the writings of St. Augustine, for instance, we find that Augustine would not have been bothered by evolutionary theory. Augustine wrote in his, I think it's in City of God, that his view was that creation happened in two forms, that creation happened in the form that God created it, and also in what he called an incipient form, which would develop later into what God wanted. So Augustine and probably Aquinas would not have been, we think, from their writings, bothered by Darwin's theory. But in the middle of the 19th century, especially in some of the churches in England, this was a turmoil-creating kind of proposal, that evolution had occurred. As a result, Darwinians, or Darwinists as they were called, were seen to be opposed to church thinking, perhaps creating the first further division as we've been seeing this division grow between science and church thinking. Now, biologists embraced Darwin. 
because it explained a lot about what you saw in the natural world, how various forms seemed to be related, some more distantly than others, how you could argue that one thing came from the other by some kind of progressive evolutionary development. But the theory was a problem for the physicist. Darwin proposed in evolutionary theory that evolution proceeded by a force, and that the force of evolution was the force called natural selection. Now, natural selection, Darwin proposed, acted as a force in nature to drive evolution. Now remember, we have physics, which is the queen of the sciences, with its own theory and its own language, and a series of laws that Newton had formulated, which described the effect of forces on the physical world. We have scientists who, according to Hume's definition of science, should only be concerned with the physical or material world. So here we have a biologist proposing a force, natural selection, which should act on something. And so the physicist's natural question would be, on what does the force act? What does natural selection act on in the physical world? What physical entity does it have an effect on? And of course, Darwin had no answer. No biologist in the 19th century had an answer for that question. So what began to look like a sound theoretical foundation for biology, that is, this idea of evolution and species relatedness, a way of making predictions maybe, was when it's jammed up against physics, seen to be lacking because we had nothing on which this force of natural selection would act. Biologists then are cast into the unenviable role of being compared to physics. Still an immature science, still descriptive, now with a theoretical basis which may or may not have any reality because it had a force upon which nothing could be the thing it acts on, no object in the natural world. So biology enters the beginning of the 20th century looking to catch up with physics. Now, several things happen in the 20th century and we're going to spend a good bit of the rest of the lectures talking about this. One thing is Mendel is rediscovered at the beginning of the 20th century. Mendel comes back into prominence. Mendel is lost for 40 years. His publication in 1868 is all but ignored. By the beginning of the 20th century, however, things in biology have changed such that Mendel's ideas and laws begin to correlate with things that are observed in the biological world, especially with respect to what we'll call the behavior of cells. And I'll come back to that a little bit later in our discussion. In addition, in the 20th century, we have the rise of what I'll call biochemistry, the chemistry of biological systems, something that wasn't really happening before the beginning of the 20th century. It was really at the end of the 19th century that organic chemistry and the idea of molecules from living systems began to be a prominent part of chemistry. And it wasn't really until the beginning of the 20th century that the science we now call biochemistry, that is the chemistry of living systems, began to take a prominent role. Thirdly, we have the development of the discipline of molecular biology. Molecular biology really comes into its own after World War II. It's actually born as a result of World War II in a history I'll tell you about a bit later. And as a result, we have a discipline which is, as we speak right now, not much more than 40 years old, but has become the central discipline of modern biology. Molecular biology itself was a child of physics. 
Aha, physics rears its head again. So now we see that biology is beginning to take on a characteristic in its change by the middle of this century, which is trying to make it look more and more like physics, the science it's been trying to emulate all along. So we have now genetics, we have biochemistry and molecular biology coming together. The final key to the puzzle comes, as we'll see later, when the discoveries of molecular biology and the ideas of genetics come together to finally give the Darwinians something upon which natural selection can act, the gene. As we'll see later, the gene becomes, by the middle of the 20th century, the object upon which natural selection can exert its force. Now suddenly, the idea of natural selection being a force in the Newtonian sense has more of a reality because there is a physical object in the world upon which that force can act. Now what has been happening to physics all this time? Well, let's go back to the 19th century. Here we had Newtonian physics reaching its pinnacle. There were Newtonian physicists who believed that if you could predict the motion of every particle in the universe, you could then tell the future, the entire future of the universe from that. Everything was seen to be incredibly deterministic, meaning that the theoretical basis of physics was so strong, was so powerful as a predictive force, that you could actually think that everything about the world was determined. It was clockwork in its functioning. As a result, 19th century physics was such that it was clear everything was answered. There were physicists who, by the end of the 19th century, were saying, we have no more experiments to do. We know everything there is to know, and we're now just filling in the holes that are in our knowledge. A few more experiments, and we'll now know everything there is to know about nature. What they didn't realize was the revolution that was about to come at the beginning of the 20th century. And that revolution was brought about by those young physicists, all of them actually in their early 20s, who invented two things, the theory of relativity, Albert Einstein, and quantum physics, Niels Bohr, Fermi, and the others. It was the advent of quantum physics and relativity that completely upset the apple cart, because now we have the great principle of quantum physics called uncertainty. The principle put forward first by Heisenberg, one of the early developers of quantum physics, which said that not that our errors in observation are simply a question of being better experimentalists, but that there was a fundamental uncertainty in our ability to know about the world. A fundamental uncertainty. Now that uncertainty, true, is really in physics calculated at the subatomic and atomic level. But nonetheless, the pattern of thinking now of scientists is such that the uncertainty in observation is seen not as a lack of precision, but as a fundamental property of our way of knowing the physical world. This changes completely the philosophical underpinnings of physics forever, at least for the present, we'll say, until the next revolution happens. Now, physics isn't seen anymore as the deterministic kind of science that it was in the 19th century. Now, physics is seen as only a description of the physical world that is as good as uncertainty allows it to be. In addition, quantum mechanics now has a series of paradoxes that are raised about the physical world. Things that happen in the physical world that can't simply be explained easily by the theory. Things like the Schrodinger's cat problem, which I'll come back to in our last lecture when we talk about some of these issues. Things like 
the interaction between particles which start together and after they are feet or yards or miles or galaxies apart are still communicating with each other instantaneously. Paradoxes which tell us that everything we see in the natural world is one giant interacting system that we can't really understand the problems are raised by the physical world by reducing it to the problem of one particle. That one particle must interact with another and as soon as we argue that we have a system of interactions rather than one particle. So the philosophical basis of science as far as physics is concerned now includes uncertainty and includes complexity. It includes systems interacting. What does that do for physics? Well, it throws out some of the older philosophical approaches. The logical positivism of the 19th century runs headlong into this and essentially disproves itself by the middle of this century. It tries to show that mathematics and logic are related in a way that isn't true and basically proves itself out of existence as a philosophical basis. And physics actually now has no what anybody would call really sound philosophical basis. It's sitting there with quantum mechanics at its center. Where is biology now in the process? Remember, biology was trying to catch up with physics, trying to become a mature science. Biology, remember, we last saw with a force, a force of evolution, the force of natural selection, upon which there was nothing to act. By the middle of the 20th century, biology has found the object of that force in the gene. But by this time, philosophically, biologists are still locked into the 19th century way of thinking. Biologists are, in fact, reductionist. As I'll argue later with you, biologists are locked into the concept that the gene and what the gene is, is the be-all and end-all of every living system. That, in fact, the gene, when you reduce everything to that level, is what determines what a biological system is. Sort of the ultimate reductionist, deterministic kind of argument. This is the antithesis of the uncertainty, complexity framework of quantum mechanics. But yet biology is locked into that by virtue of two things. By virtue of its experimental methodology, which is to reduce, and by virtue of its need to try to prove itself, I think, in the light of what physics had become. But it's proving itself, I think, again, this is my opinion, against a 19th century model, not against a 20th century model. As a result, I'll try to show you that projects like the Human Genome Project, which we'll come to a little bit later in our series, are based on this very reductionist, very deterministic kind of approach to biology, where what is at the basis of everything is really this very small thing, this unit, and not the entire system. Now, stop for a minute and let's go back to our view of nature around us. We see around us the cacti, the shrubbery of the Sonoran Desert. If we look around, we see this incredible diversity, this incredible complexity around us in living systems. We see within them a lot of structure, a lot of organization, and if we try then to break each one of these down into its simplest parts and say every one of these things around us is merely a collection of those parts of it at its simplest level, the genes, and that nothing else exists other than that, we have a logical problem to deal with. And I'll try to give you what are the logical errors, I think, that are made if we lock ourselves into that reductionist approach. In addition, if we ignore the complexity of nature, how this plant interacts with this plant, how I interact with these plants, how the entire environment around us begins to interact, 
if we ignore those system interactions, we again lose something of the flavor of this. And again, modern biology, rightfully so experimentally, has taken a plant or an animal into the laboratory environment and began to extract information out of it in this very methodological reductionist fashion. But yet to take that back out using again the philosophical basis I've been describing and try to say that's how the real world works leads us again into some logical inconsistencies. So we have a problem now. Biology is up against explaining this world but is given as its tools a series of disciplines which by being modeled on physics, by being locked into a theoretical basis and a philosophical basis which by definition is reductionist and deterministic, doesn't allow the complexity to be analyzed as easily. Now, the problem comes when we face the real world situation. Physics, interestingly enough, has avoided that problem. Physics doesn't actually try to describe the real world. Someone has said, and asking Niels Bohr, is physics an accurate description of the real world? Niels Bohr's answer to that question was, no, physics is just the way we have of describing the real world in mathematical terms. It isn't actually a description of the real world. It's just a best way we have of using mathematics to describe certain things about the real world. But biology is left with the real world, with living things as they exist. And as a result, is now locked into a model which doesn't include that as a way of thinking about it. So now we have biology at a crossroads. My intention in this series is then to take you through some information about modern biology, specifically about genetics, about molecular biology, and about what has come from molecular biology, biotechnology, and the Human Genome Project. At each step of the way, I'd like to try to explore with you some issues that this raises. In fact, I'd like to discuss those issues in some detail with you in the last of the two of these series of lectures. And our goal will be to try to see how modern biology has gotten itself into a situation in which these issues are raised and what way we have of getting out of it in the hopes of avoiding the issue or overcoming the issue and moving biology on to the next level of information that we'd like to find. In the process of doing this, my goal is to try not to teach you everything about biology, but just to give you enough of the information about modern biology so that in your thinking about it, we can actually go forward and see where this should go. Now, in our next lecture, I plan to explore with you the laws of Mendel. I particularly want to explore with you things about the cell, the cell being the basic unit of life, and about how the laws of Mendel were developed by Gregor Mendel, in what climate he developed them, and how it was that they were not accepted originally at the end of the 19th century and only came to be accepted at the beginning of the 20th century. At that point, we'll look at specifically Mendelian genetics, define some terms for you, define some of the structures involved, and go from there to an exploration of how genetics in the modern world raises issues for us in terms of bioethics, in terms of faith issues, in terms of real-world issues for people. And so with that, I think we'll wait for the next lecture to pick up the ideas of Gregor Mendel and modern genetics. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.